welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast that investigates the mana. That's the superpower in some of the most influential leaders who are building the future in tech innovation and finance. I'm Lloyd Wahead, a London-born entrepreneur and headhunter with over 15 years experience on a mission to discover what drives our guests to succeed. How have they got to the top? What attributes have excelled in their career? Listen to find out. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Welcome to Searching for Mana, Nikki. Very nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Our pleasure. Very excited to have you on the show. Um, it's August 2020 to set the scene. Um, for a fuller introduction, Nicola Anne Morgan, Baroness Morgan of Coates PC, is a British politician who served in the cabinet as Education Secretary from 2014 to 2016 and as Culture Secretary from 2019 to 2020. A member of the Conservative Party, uh, Nikki, uh, was a Parliament uh, member for Loughborough um, for nine years, from 2010 to 2019. Um, more recently, um, has become a member of the House of Lords, hence the um, fantastic title. And um, just for a, a, a brief um, background, um, Nikki was born in Kingston-upon-Thames, uh, where I also went to school, Kingston Grammar, um, and was um, at Surbiton High, I think, and um, then ended up graduating from Oxbridge um, in the in the the beginning phase of Nikki's um, career. Um, I don't know much more, but you you started as a lawyer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, M and A lawyer. Yeah, fantastic. This is this is a trend that um, I'm coming across a lot with um, with with politicians. Uh, and I'm sure that makes sense, given your writing legislation. We'll we'll dig into um, many things on the show. So, of course, education, technology, culture, um, we, we will cover. Um, really, before we go back into your background, Nikki, what would be great is if you could give us a snapshot of what's going on, what's current in your life right now. So I am, as we recall this, sitting in uh, Coates, which is in my title, because it's a little village, uh, in fact, a little hamlet in Leicestershire, uh, which is uh, near Loughborough, my former constituency. Um, and I am um, in the home where I've been throughout the whole of lockdown uh, with my uh, son, my 12-year-old son, and my husband, who is leader of the local council. Um, and I had the extraordinary experience, obviously, of leaving government in February of this year, and thinking that I might end up doing, you know, some kind of job. Uh, you're not allowed to work for the first three months after you've left anyway. And then discovering that obviously the employment market looks rather different. So I'm sort of building a portfolio, I suppose, at the moment of um, some non-exec directorships and some consultancies, and also getting used to uh, using Zoom to be in the House of Lords, because um, I haven't been in London since middle of March, which feels really extraordinary. Um, and then, you know, spending lockdown, uh, barbecuing, I suppose, when the weather is good, uh, running uh, in local country lanes, which is something I'm really keen on. And I'm also a trustee, um, and in fact, I've just come off a, a long call uh, of a local mental health social enterprise. And, uh, and I chair the board of directors there. And um, so that's been really interesting, actually, has been moving all our services online and supporting people with uh, their own mental health during the lockdown crisis and the, the COVID crisis. So yeah, there's been plenty to keep me busy. I, I did say I was even politics, uh, or at least frontline politics, spend more time with my family. I don't think they or I thought it'd be this much time. Uh, and we're all looking forward to school starting next month. Fantastic. Um, is that, has that been a really refreshing change from when you're in the cabinet, for instance, it's full on. Of course, I assume House of Lords and all the things you're up to with your portfolio for Ray is too. But is has there been a notable difference in, in, in the time you have to do a broader amount of things, including with family and hobbies? Definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I think politics, um, being a member of parliament alone, let alone adding a ministerial role or anything else on top of it, I was also chair of the House of Commons Treasury Select Committee for a, a couple of years. Um, you know, politics is a full time, literally full time. It is a 365 day a year job. 
Um, and it is 24 hours a day, almost, I mean, of course. But I mean, one of the ways, you know, I got through the last 10 years was just learning to sleep less. Um, I wasn't quite down to Margaret Thatcher's four hours a night, but um, so that's one of the things actually, it's just been catching up on sleep, um, which I used to do in a sort of two week holiday period um, in the summer. And now I've had a few more months to do that. And somebody um, who left politics in 2015 said to me, the one thing you'll get used to is having your evenings back. Yeah. And of course, lockdown exacerbated that because frankly, you can't go anywhere. So you couldn't go out to see friends. You couldn't go and have a drink, obviously. Um, so you, you know, I've watched more TV than I've watched for a very long time, for example. Um, but yes, it, it's been, and I think actually, um, it's also been a bit of a shock to the system, if I'm completely honest. You're, you get used to living at 100 miles an hour and you think you are uh, enjoying it, coping with it. And, and, and I absolutely did. But when suddenly somebody puts the brakes on and to a certain extent in terms of lockdown involuntarily um i thought that i have more time to you know my husband and i both really enjoy cooking so we were going to have lots of dinner parties catch up with friends we've got a, a lovely house where we can host people for staying for weekends and that sort of thing and obviously none of that has happened uh so um you know the things you thought you were going to be doing has also changed and i'm you know I, it's definitely taken an adjustment to go from living a pretty frenetic life where you are constantly also on the emails to actually uh, being able to, to enjoy some downtime. If you, um, it's something that we can all share that experience of recently um, where, where it's been forced, you know, the, um, the, the kind of more mindful quietness that you have to have. Um, and it's really interesting to look at a lot of um, Google search analytics and how, and how uh, you know things like um, hangovers, as uh, as a, a terrible example for me to give, but I, but I'll give it. Um, as soon as um, COVID came about, the searching for hangovers increased um, because I suppose of perhaps fear, concern, perhaps free time, not having to go into work and present yourself. Many reasons, um, and then actually it instantly dropped to lower than what it was pre-COVID because I suppose people, you know, had a bit more time to reflect on, uh, you know, how to manage manage things properly. And then recently it's, it's cranked right back up. But um, <laughs> with with the um, productivity that you were talking about when, when, you, when it was really full on uh, and you joked about Margaret Thatcher, you know, famously slept four hours, didn't she? What, what are some of the things um, that you had in your routine to be able to do all the things you have to? I'm, I'm at the moment reading, um, and again, this is probably a bad thing to say, but Tony Blair's memoirs, um, because it's, I, I've read it once before, and he's, he's, what, he, what he clearly was, was an incredible, uh, incredible, I would say, um, strategist for a long period of time, whatever his legacy has become. And so I'm trying to learn from how he really um, took uh, a certain philosophy in the Labour Party and then completely changed it. And then that was uh, 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 additive to his success. But actually what comes across to me as really powerful is how he was just so structured with his routines. And if you applied that to anything, you'd you'd be more likely to be successful. You must have this running through your career because of all the success that you've had and still carrying on having. Could you, could you share some of those with us, please? So I think the, the first thing, I mean, you're, you know, that's, that's interesting about a strategist. And I think one of the things you find actually is that before you get into a big job, when you're trying to get there, you obviously have time, you have to plan how you're going to do it. So whether it's going from you know, Tony Blair being from opposition to government, or when I was a, so I was a candidate in, in Loughborough, my constituency for six and a half years before I was elected. And so, you know, constantly, and was also juggling, uh, working in London, becoming a mum and everything else at the same time. So you become obviously uh, very adept at time management. So one of the things, I mean, I, you know, when I was in the, the cabinet and actually over you know, time was just getting up early in the morning. So um, uh, I, I'm quite an early morning person anyway. But getting up at you know half five six o'clock, particularly when you're you've got a box, you know all ministers have boxes of papers, and I just find that's a good time to really power on through things or crack on with 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 emails before you know you get on with the with the day. And now I use that time actually for for exercise, which is which is nice. So I think time management. I think you also become very focused on um, what what you really have to do, and I'm a very much a to do list person. Um, and so I like having the achievement of having a list of things, but also you have to focus on what do I best do 
and what do other people best do? So again, you know, when I was an MP, I had a team of people, researchers, caseworkers, um, only ever two in London, two in Loughborough. Um, but I would delegate. I, I checked all of my own emails, but then I would push them out to various members of the team because I knew they were the best people to deal with, you know, various, various things. So I think that ability to, to delegate. I mean, what I did find, though, is it's very hard when you're doing the job full on to actually have time to to sit back and strategize. And I think it's Barack Obama who every night and I think the Americans often finish the working day earlier. But he would then apparently go off and sit somewhere quietly every night to think about the big questions, what needs to be done and everything else. I wasn't that disciplined, but things like car journeys, train journeys, um, uh, you know, trying to go for, for exercise and everything else does give you the opportunity just to stand back, I think, and just to think about and to unravel problems and, you know, think about the knotty issues and everything else. So it's all of that. Um, and then, you know, trying to uh, trying to make sure you do spend time with with uh, with friends and family, too. And, and that can be the thing that, that suffers, um, I think. Um, and we have to be very disciplined about making sure that you do see see people. What did you find most frustrating about being um, being an MP? I think, um, and I think it's probably getting getting worse and worse, um, is that um, you often find that your inbox is absolutely swamped by repeat correspondence and there's a real danger of missing, and this is why partly I did my own inbox, of missing um, the person who contacts you most in need. So uh, you, you will often have a standard email campaigns. And these are issues that people do care about, undoubtedly. But in the midst of the 150, 250, 500 emails, all complaining about, um, I don't know, one particular issue, um, there is an email that says, uh, I'm about to be made homeless um, and I really need help from my member of parliament. Um, and I always worried about that person's voice being lost. Uh, amongst uh, all the other stuff that was that was going on at the end of the day I think um, that is why we do the job as an MP is to stand up for people who who need your you know help and maybe can't do it themselves uh, and you have to guard all the time that their voices don't get lost amid all the political hubbub that's um very similar to the challenge um, which makes sense that Ed Vasey who's been on the show also um, talked us through it's just, um, you know, most people come into the job with with fantastic intentions um, and, you know, that um, compelling but also overwhelming um, task of trying to make sure you prioritise um, who's in need and um, how your time can be most effective um, is something that um, is, is challenging in all walks of life, but particularly resonant when it's like you say, somebody who... Um, who might have a particular struggle. Um, what would you say, um, given you're on Searching for Mana, um, which is a show where um, we're trying to really find what the, the particular purpose um, that somebody, somebody has in their career has been, what would you say if I um, coined it more as your superpower has been? I suppose my superpower has been as it was from probably when I was about age five and a half. I think my first school report said if Nicola, uh, and the only person, by the way, who called me Nicola is my father, but if Nicola spent less time talking and more time doing uh, or working, then she would probably achieve more in the class. And I suspect that probably <laughs> talking has been uh, my, um, I wouldn't say superpower, uh, although others might, but it is about being, so I think both law are going to law, but also particularly into politics, you are an advocate for other people, you know, for your constituents, for people who are campaigning for a particular outcome. You know, and that's why I'm delighted actually to still have the opportunity in the House of Lords in a very different way, but to pick issues that matter. Um, or, you know, I've just joined the board of the, uh, the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, which is the scheme that um, uh, if your bank account, your bank goes down, your insurance company will pay out, you know, guarantee up to £85,000. And again, you know, people who are in their real hour of need often, uh, actually making sure that somebody is there to pick them up and to help and to, to, and to support. So, but yeah, talking about that is probably, yeah, gabbling away is probably my thing. <laughs> Very useful. Um, I'm just going to quickly fire some, um, 
of your peers' names, and if you could just shout out what you think their mana is too, please. <laughs> All right. Let's start with Ed Vasey. Oh, well, I mean, Ed was just a brilliant arts minister. I'm listening to your, your podcast. So, I mean, I think he inspired confidence in probably an arena where the Conservative Party doesn't always have uh, the, uh, the, the greatest of, of relationships. David Cameron. Well, David had the ability to work in, incredibly hard without necessarily always making it look that way. He made the difficult task of being prime minister and particularly handling the House of Commons look easy. And I think people actually got cross with him for making it look easy. They didn't realise quite how much work was going on underneath. Michael Grove. Well, Michael's just super intelligent. He has the ability to literally just kind of hoover up a brief. Um, and I have seen him in meetings uh, just, re you know, come out with the detail of somebody else's brief, um, which he's also had the time to, to absorb. Um, and you cannot, uh, you cannot get one over on Michael on detail. Just, just two more, because this is this is fun. Um, Boris Johnson. He has the ability to make you feel better. Uh, when you're in a meeting with him, whether it's a, a cabinet or a one-on-one or, -on -one or you, a speech or anything like that, you actually, I think, leave the room always um, in a in a better mood. And he has managed to create a, a team spirit uh, than you than you might have expected. Okay, last one, Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> well, perhaps it's, it's on the allotment, which is where he is spending more time. <laughs> um, we're we're going to go into your 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 bio, um, but just one last um, thing um, that I'd like to ask you, because again, you're on the Searching for Mana show, and um, we're deeply entrenched in um, the digital space, the challenges. Um, and the show thus far has very much been um, looking at fintech and uh, a, a relatively early guest that we were incredibly fortunate to have on the show, um, Charlotte Croswell um, of Innovate Finance, um, said in 2008, um, she really thought that fintech um, brought us out of the recession um because the challenge there was so much um from the banks and over the last um decade or so whether we're there or not it's never ending um there's been so much wonderful innovation that you know i've certainly had the pleasure to be involved with seeing happen um it's 2020 uh august and a recession has just been announced this week what do you feel will get us out of this one well, I think it will be it will be our innovative spirit. And I think Charlotte's done a fantastic job of representing uh, the fintech uh, sector. Um, I think one of the things we all need to think about is we talk about fintech, but I'm always very conscious that for people outside that world, you know, what does that really mean? And if we're trying to inspire the next generation to think about perhaps a career in fintech or tech or digital, um, we're sometimes all very good about using these phrases without necessarily um, understand that people don't follow what we're talking about. But undoubtedly, in the UK, hundreds of years, it's our spirit of innovation and the fact that we are very adaptable as, I think, a, a nation in finding you know, new sectors, new ways of, of, of doing things. Uh, and I'm sure that will count. I mean, look, I think the recession will we'll obviously going to have to see. But um, uh, I think there's some very good commentary about the fact that in a way, yes, we've entered a technical recession because obviously the huge fall in GDP in the spring. But actually, the next year to 18 months is going to be the tougher bit, which is when we see it play out in terms of unemployment. But also, clearly, there are going to be some industries and sectors that are going to find it very hard to get back on their feet in the way they were before because of social distancing or just because things change. So the high street, for example, you know, people buying online, you know that people do want to get back to face to face contact. But I suspect a number of people who have bought online, banked online, that is going to be a permanent shift. So the question is going to be, how do ministers, how do trade bodies like Innovate Finance help to shepherd that in a way that um, identifies future opportunities for entrepreneurs and for employees? Yeah, um, because I asked Charlotte, um, because in my much smaller way, um, I'll keep trying to shepherd the innovation um, because of all the benefits that come from it. 
And um, so on the show, the reason that, you know, we started with Ed Vasey and now we're interviewing you and I'll carry on doing this um, in part is because, um, you know, so much of it is about really the sentiment from the powers that be wanting to make sure that the innovation remains and is is promoted. Um, and some of my concerns recently are I'm seeing um, large incumbent banks, for instance, who had innovation hubs um, pull those. And, you know, let's hope this is some type of knee jerk um, because you do not want that. You want through this period, even though it might not make business sense to appreciate, as you say, for the last couple of hundred years, you know, everything that's great about um, this this country is certainly the innovation that comes out of it. And so now's where we really need to rein into that. So Charlotte's doing fantastic work of, of um, shepherding and promoting that, as are many other people. Obviously, this is something Ed Vasey is very passionate about. And clearly, and clearly you are too. And so it's just about trying to really, um, certainly for our audience, bring the key figures who have that mission um, and for us to all, you know, keep on making sure that um, we do the right thing on that. And the government's just announced, I think, a, a review of fintech. Um, and of course, we've got the issues around uh, Brexit and financial services, the changes, and actually it may be that fintech companies are more nimble than some of the long established players and taking advantage of some of those changes. And so I think it's important in terms of government that people um, listening to this, if you have a view on what the fintech sector or the tech sector needs in terms of support, make sure that you respond to the reviews, you, you know, uh, use your trade bodies to put views forward to government. Uh, I think in Rishi Sunak, you have a chancellor who, I mean, he himself has worked in business and he's interested in new ideas. And in government, um, often it's ministers who will say, actually, this sounds like a really promising thing. Let's go with it. Completely agree. Um, so we go back to now, if possible, the first moment that you really internalised and defined what a career for you might be. Gosh, I mean, so I ended up as a lawyer and a politician, partly because, um, so it does all follow through. So I was very lucky in having a father who, um, because he himself had had absolutely zero careers advice from family or school or anything like that, and had wandered around a bit through various things, was determined that his children, uh, so I have a younger brother, was going to do a bit better. Now, I'm not sure necessarily my, my brother would say, you know, he didn't necessarily uh, sort of um, rise or respond to that, and, you know, but, but I, I think I, I did and I appreciated it. And so my father was a barrister, um, so that was why law came in, I think, uh, although I ended up as a solicitor. And then he was also always very interested in, in politics. He was a local councillor, and I think he could see that I was really interested in current affairs. And, but the trouble is it, it shouldn't rely on, on families. Um, schools obviously have a, a role. And, and I, so I went to school, as you say, uh, Serviton High in the 70s. Well, I, joined, I went there in 79, I left in 1990. And I gotta be honest, I don't think at that point the careers provision was great. Um, and, uh, you know, there was sort of nobody said, oh, by the way, you know, I don't I don't think I'm not sure that law was even necessarily mentioned. Politics certainly wasn't. Um, so I was very keen always that it shouldn't be left to chance. Young people need inspiration. They need to know the possibilities and families often through themselves not being exposed to future careers or future industries. Why would they say to their young people, actually, you know, the world of tech? or digital or whatever is, is going to be there for you. So as an MP, I work with my local college to, to set up a scheme called Bridge to Work. And then when I was Education Secretary, we took it to a national level and set up the Careers and Enterprise Company, uh, which I found a brilliant chair in a lady called Christine Hodgson, uh, who phoned me a couple months ago and she said, now you've got some free time, you can come and join our board, uh, yeah. which I have done as a non-exec and I'm delighted to do so. Um, but, but they're doing a, you know, a grand job of, of finding careers leaders in schools, setting up cornerstone employers. Um, but you know, a lot of it comes back to, as I say, too much still um, in careers or, or jobs depends on speaking to the right person or not speaking to the right person, not even knowing. Um, I mean, I, I represent Loughborough. Loughborough University has got a huge engineering department. Not one, I'm not sure I would have been a great engineer, but not one person ever mentioned to me engineering in all its many forms as a possible career for a girl from Serviton. So um, this is something that we give a lot of thought to 
uh, as headhunters. And, you know, I won't be politically correct here. You have to, in my opinion, in the education system, um, tool um, the students up with more than becoming competent at various subjects. I think what possibly would be really useful is if students understood um, their kind of inner makeup, right? So as an example, you can um, take various type of um, tests and tests sounds really horrible, but where you can see where your various aptitudes are. And those various aptitudes then probably mean that you'd be more suited to one thing or the other. Um, and so we do this with um, with uh, with with our staff, and I do this myself at Mana Search, and we do this for various clients of ours. And it's not to say that you know. Let's give um, extreme examples. If somebody has uh, incredibly high numerical competencies, naturally, uh, not academic ones. That's just how their mind thinks. But they're not so strong on uh, strong on as you were talking. Uh, you know, what, what does that come from? Talking possibly comes from some type of high level of reasoning, perhaps, so you can listen to something, digest it, and then soundbite it. Um, that doesn't mean that somebody who's numerical can't go into that type of crib. But what it is, what is proven is if you do, every day that you try hard at that, you'll create some type of stress debt. So, so when I review somebody who on paper looks like for 15 years, they've just had this rising profile of a career. Um, in investment banking, but they're they're desperately unhappy. You go back and you're like, well, why did you go into it? And it's just the most um, tiny amount of thought that has happened, which is typically from either parents, um, certain early influences, um, or literally, if if they don't, if they're not fortunate to have that that mentorship or, or counsel. Um, okay, well, I kind of did well at that subject, so I thought I would just go do that. It looked like where you could either get paid well or it was rewarding, you could travel. And so uh, I, I know um, very little about education versus you today, for sure, but I'm pretty sure, actually, that, that what would be logical is to put that in to the system. So it's like, okay, here's your grades. You understand this very well, this not so well, but here's what your aptitudes are and perhaps have some career guidance on there for pursuing this. No, I, I, I entirely agree. And I think also, so a couple of things there, one when I was education secretary, as well as looking at grades and subjects, I did a lot of work on character and you can call it life skills or whatever it might be, but you'll see people, and I certainly see, have seen people who uh, respond differently to challenges. You know, some people have a knockback um, and that absolutely floors them and they really struggle to pick themselves up again. And other people have terrible things happen to them. Great disappointments, you know, bad grades, whatever it might be. And, and actually somehow manage to, you know, get to a different place and, and have that self-belief. And, you know, that sort of, that stickability, which is uh, not a word, but it's a word we use in sort of character circles because it does that bounce back ability. It, it makes a huge difference. So I think there's there's that you're absolutely right about, and that's why the empowering careers leaders in secondary schools, in particular, to to help them to students and to expose them to different options. And it reminds me of a story I heard about um, a young man who um, was going to be something in computing, and dad, uh, who was of an older, more traditional generation, said that's not a proper job. It doesn't involve using your hands, um, and that's sometimes what you're up against. And we always have this thing about. Uh, trying to encourage it wasn't just schools although actually there's still I think there's sometimes a bias against apprenticeships but it was about persuading families that actually uh, an apprenticeship can offer a real real route in life uh, rather than university at the age of 18 and I think the other thing you just finally is adaptability and agility and you must getting you must see this I guess getting people to think about so I'm entering the third phase of my career at the moment who knows there'll be more, but you know, I've done full-time law, I've done full-time politics, and now I'm doing something else. And it is a shock to think, well, actually, and, and talking to your colleagues in recruitment has been good, and you know, saying first time to do a CV in 17 years. What actually have you learned over your career so far? What do you what exactly what do you enjoy doing? What does your ideal role look like now? Um, and and being able to say, actually, I'm not gonna I remember being absolutely castigated by the Daily Mail when I said 
young people today are going to have probably you know seven or eight different careers oh that's ridiculous but actually think about it people go into a job then maybe they'll set up a business then they'll sell that business and they'll do something else and all of those are different different roles in in life and work uh, and i think that's the way that the employee well you'll know more than me that i think that's the way the employment market is very much going it looks like it it looks like um upskilling is um is the way to to prudently make sure that you can adapt over those seven different phases through a career um which which leads me nicely on to to thinking through um what your view is on now would you recommend um somebody going into um let's say a professional service career um to to go to somewhere like code first girls uh, or, or Udacity or somewhere where you can um, have the equivalent of an apprenticeship online or still use the traditional university system? I think it, it, it very much depends on yeah what, what you want to do. And at 18, it's often hard to know, but also the kind of person you are at the age of, of 18. Um, mm. And and I think think about why you're going to university. There's, there's no, you know, and there's, absolutely still a need for people to go to university and study subjects that appear not to be immediately useful on the day after you leave university but actually have trained your mind to think in a certain way as you say about reasoning or logic or questioning or whatever it it, it might be um uh, but there are some people for whom actually I, I you know i know at the age of 18 17 18 are just not in a place to go to university um haven't particularly enjoyed school want to just get out and actually so i remember talking to some apprentices at rolls royce um who we were talking about maths and they had uh, gone i think and done like a summer scheme there and they said only when they did that and somebody showed them this is how we use maths in the workplace you know building fantastic engines at rolls royce they then thought oh, i understand now why i'm doing maths um and i don't think any teacher probably because they are teachers and not Rolls-Royce engineers, is going to be able to explain that in the same way. And that's why having those really high quality careers interactions, which can be in a variety of ways, maybe are all virtual, is so important for, I think, young people understanding, this is the context, this is why I'm learning maths, this is why languages are important, uh, this is what actually English and being able to use language and writing does in terms of being in the, in the workplace. But this is also a fun of, uh, I was, I was in a shop recently in my constituency, my former constituency, and this young man said to me, he said, do you remember me? And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. No, and he said, you taught me how to shake hands. And he, he, he'd done a work experience placement. And I think we had, um, he stood up to shake hands. Of course, we can't do that these days, social distancing. And, um, and, and I said, oh, come on, right, let's learn how to do this properly. Um, and, and we had a bit of a practice. And he went around and shook hands with everybody else in the office. And it is one of those things, you know, when you first walk into a room, perhaps not now, but you would shake hands, look someone in the eye and say, hello, how are you? Thank you for this interview or whatever. Unless somebody says to you, actually, this is a skill worth learning. You know, you can, you can not know it. And then immediately their employer might think, well, that person didn't make an impression when they walked into the room. So I'm going to give it to the other person who did. Um, so true. Uh, who, who taught you how to shake hands properly? Uh, I think it was probably my, my parents actually. <laughs> um, just crushing your hand until you. You know, on the Trump Macron bit where they were shaking hands and wouldn't let each other go. They were trying to crush each other's hands. That's not a good look. Did, did have you ever met Trump? No, gosh, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, it's a shame. It's a shame. Um, Macron. Nope. Ah, okay. Things, things to do. Angela, I Angela. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Oh, just just still in that university um, trail of questioning. Um, I was I was I was talking to somebody who had been working at Monzo uh, recently, who are one of the headline fintech businesses from London, um, who who um, were in the press a lot at the moment. Um, some good, some bad, um, but nonetheless, actually, what was interesting to me was this individual had. Um, Ended up going to Cambridge, taken um, engineering and then further ed, uh, engineering. Just, you know, this is the top education that you could strive to achieve. Uh, then had secured um, a role 
um, at the rip-roaring success, uh, which is Monzo, had been promoted. So, you, you know, on paper, 27, 28-year-old, couldn't have done any better. Um, he had £60,000 of um, um, student, student debt um, and um, was just like, this 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 is this is really annoying right um and and uh, and it is and it's it's frustrating and it's hard to understand how to how to kind of you know uh explain to that person well i mean holistically you've done the right thing you know you've got just the best education and his background wasn't fortunate in terms of fam family um family finances so he done everything he could to get scholarships got into cambridge still there's a the 60,000 debt then he'd gone and got um, a job in one of the most kind of sexy to get type of roles, which is product. And then it definitely probably the most uh, cool firm to go get it at. And he's still in this situation where, you know, as somebody entering his 30s soon, which is when you want a financial house around you, if you're thinking about family and all these type of things or, or for whatever reason, um, is, is in this stress. And um and I don't know how to resolve it because I, I thought, okay, well, 15 years ago, was this happening? Like I look at my own, um, very compared to him in significant education. And, you know, I I, I came out of uh, university with a few thousand pounds, um, few thousand pounds student debt, uh, which is more palatable. Um, and actually salaries at that point were pretty much even for this type of role. And so if you just think of the difference the last 15 years has been a disaster for that type of scenario. And I know it's it's worse in America, but um, this is obviously something that will be dear to your heart in terms of having tried and trying to fix. What can we do? What's the solution? Well, I think probably it, it goes back to getting people to think about. I mean, I, I don't think um, that young man will ever regret having Cambridge University on his CV. Um, but I think it is about thinking and, and yeah, engineering at Cambridge. I mean, I think any degree probably from, from that particular university or others uh, is going to speak volumes to, to a future employer. And I guess, I mean, there's a number of things. One is obviously 15 years, I went to university 30 years ago, uh, you know, so obviously you're very much younger than me. And, um, but the point is, fewer people were going to university, certainly in my day. And you think back to when, you know, university started sort of, you know, 60s, 70s, um, even fewer people. And that was wrong as a country. You know, we need people to be well educated. But the honest truth is, and I was there as an MP, I was uh, the PPS to the university's minister back in 2010, we took the decision to, you know, massively increase the fees. Um, what we hadn't expected, I think, was that all universities would feel some sort of obligation to rush to the 9,000 because they thought it was a quality threshold. Um, but I think that young man should see that as a huge investment in his future. And it is a very different kind of debt. And we have this all this debate about whether you end up with a graduate tax or obviously a loan system. He has absolutely invested in his future in a way that should not count against him in terms of mortgages and everything else. But I, the point I, is, I agree. I agree. About, but thinking about what he was going to do, did he need a degree to go to work for, for Monzo or whoever it might be? That that's really the decision point. And it's very hard at eighteen to know what you're going to going to do. So loans and debt shouldn't put people off, but it should make people ask the question more and more: Where am I going to go? What do I actually? What do I need in terms of getting to, to my chosen career? Yes. So there's two things here. One it one is um again 15 30 years ago the the reward for admittedly the fewer university uh, educations was that you then went on to the conveyor belt of being a professional where the financial house is instantly given to you in in essence you know if i go back to my parents generation um you bought a wonderful house in the city it was affordable you went to the bank manager this was this was this was provided because of the credentials that you had whereas you know and this goes back to me reading about tony blair because he's definitely to blame for that 50 percent. people should be in university um the the example of the individual going to cambridge and getting engineering you just suspect is going to pay off right a bit albeit there's going to be stress if you decide to go to the the flash startup versus where perhaps the salary might be bigger and again that'll be seen uh, as to whether that's the right decision or not but if you go to a university that might be more of a metropolitan um or some of the ones that are now um 
you know, subscription based online, etc., then it's a harder certainty. And so when you mentioned, um, I think it's good for people to be um, further educated, that that's for sure, right? But is it good for them to go and take out some type of debt to go to a university? Not so certain. So do we have the percentage of people going to university and accruing this type of debt wrong? I'm very pleased, actually, that the Education Secretary has dropped the 50% target, because I think that is important. And I think that was the wrong way. I, th I think probably it was chosen as some sort of international measure of education and put the UK in a certain place in a certain league table. I think that was the wrong way to look at it. Um, it's difficult to say about, um, you know, is it worth getting debt if you go to X institution? Because it depends, again, on what you're doing. There are certain uh, universities uh, which in themselves people may not look at and think okay that's somewhere that I know but but that particular course yeah so, so uh you know there are some courses for example on video gaming um which actually is a fantastic sector that the UK is doing really really well in or film production um, and again it you know you do need to go to university potentially to, to to learn to do those things at a higher level and you are going to make an enormous contribution to the country but also you know to your to yourself um, and I think that was going back to the decision, you know, when we made the decision as a government to uh, increase the tuition fees, that was where we thought people would, uh, universities and institutions would set, have a more competitive market, was that some people would say, okay, we know we're not Cambridge or Oxford, but we do this really, really well, but we're going to charge this. Or we understand that many more of our students actually live at home, and therefore actually we can afford to set our fees at this because we know we're really good at what we do. But everyone, there was a rush to a certain threshold of fee because people thought if I don't charge that um, then people will think my degrees aren't, aren't very good and I don't think that was helpful to, to, to anybody. Um, and we'll have to see of course now with the current situation um, whether in fact we know there are some institutions that are going to find I think the next couple of years difficult because potentially fewer international students, less research income, you know, so it's going to be, you know, I think the higher education sector, it's a great UK export, but undoubtedly that, you know, I suspect there are some changes ahead. For sure. I'm um, connected with um, some universities, which I won't mention. And, um, you know, they are going through a period of having to promote so heavily to get the catchment of students that they would normally get because of the lack of international students who are now deciding that this is an obvious place to come and get their education. And so these are really prestigious institutes. If we work down in order, I suspect um, that there'll be a natural order of, unfortunately, um, some of certainly the courses disappearing, which over time, I'm not sure if it's a bad thing. Because um, as, as you say, um, you know, I, I didn't go to a great university um, because I, I decided to go and choose a course that, was the only course in the country at that point which combined psychology with economics. And I knew from a really um, relatively young uh, age what I wanted to do. And um, those two things have been super useful with what I've done. So that was lucky. Um, but um, actually, everybody at that um, that institute who I was hanging around with was um, learning computer graphics and kind of the off-piece classic metropolitan type of... Um, educations they've all gone on to do incredibly well because they got that particular niche skill set that then turned out to be um really useful and so yeah it's probably working in order of two things isn't it it's one when people go and select what education to take perhaps schooling and counseling being a little bit stronger on helping them showing them insights is this suitable for you and then secondly um you know trying to work out actually what's fair based on a fee versus then what your earning potentials are as you move forward in your career. When the tuition fees were introduced, I think vice chancellors announced it, or they said after you know open days, students and future students and parents would come along, and people start asking a question much more, which I think is right, which is actually uh, what do graduates from this particular course or this particular university, where do they end up? And I, again, I think that you know learning classics at, at a you know a top university um, is a great training you know for your brain. But um, it's not going to be right for everybody. Um, and actually, uh, you know, I know that other universities really pride themselves on the fact they do a placement year, for example, for every student, 
really helps in terms of future employment and so they're able to set themselves apart on that basis and that's what we want to see. Yep and so Nikki you're of course an incredibly successful politician if anybody's listening to this um, thinking they want to get into politics um, and that's you know how long is a piece of string type 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 of question but um, would you say that you recommend strategically going into a profession something like law um, or, or, or other particular professions uh, and then coming to politics or in fact actually um, just go for it you know that's that's one of the mantras isn't it it's like you know do what you're passionate about don't worry about anything else but they're two different strategic options what would you recommend I would always recommend having a career before you go into politics I think life experience um, and that career could be long or short and a lot of time people end up getting elected not when they necessarily expect to do so or alternatively they've, they've gone off and thought they were going to work for a number of years make their money then try politics and it never worked out for whatever reason so there is no right way of doing it but I certainly found that life experience I worked for 16 years in the city of London um, and yes you know big law firms are only one microcosm of society uh, but I was also involved I mean I think the other thing is to be involved as a grassroots member of your party um, now of course there are some people who are in jobs where they are politically restricted but you know I think that that you can do other things and campaigns get involved in charities whatever it might be that give you that ability but but politics is about people it's about people handling and I think it's really hard to do that if you haven't had experience of doing that outside and the yes and then the, the other thing um, that I consider is that you need to be like a historian on politics and so I, what always um, impresses me is just the depth of historical understanding that politicians have and 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 so of course some are able at 23 out of education to go in and eulogize about what happened in 1927 and for instance um, that lends them to be able to be a career politician but if you're somebody who's super busy as you are um, in a demanding profession, uh, having a family and uh, and socialising as well, um, like how do how do you? Um, so you're developing the people skills. Uh, I appreciate there would have been an interest in in politics, and I'm interested if there was a strategic um, knowledge that you wanted to get into it. How are you tooling yourself up for that? That is by going into grassroots politics and also studying. So I didn't study. So it was very interesting to listen to the Ed Vasey podcast that you did, because obviously Ed did it you know, a different way. But he worked for the Conservative Party and worked alongside, I think, the, the David Camerons of this world and everything else. I never did that. I went off uh, to, to do law. I was a grassroots volunteer. I was always, always interested in politics and current affairs. I didn't, ex I didn't think, didn't go into the party thinking I was going to be an MP. It wasn't until after the 1997 election I looked at what was left of the Tory party and thought, Crikey, they, that they need a refresh and they need more women. Uh, I'm going to put my name forward. Um, I guess my politics was learned, A, on the doorsteps. So, you know, what do people really care about that you're talking to? And I guess my political knowledge came from uh, listening to other people talking, reading biographies of politicians, um, uh, reading books about political theory. I didn't study politics at university. I did law. I wish in a way I'd done history. Um, but I did law because I thought in a way it was sort of, it was vocational. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, so I thought it was a useful thing to do. And I don't regret law, but I'd like to have done a bit more history as well. Um, and that's the thing, I think you have in the parliamentary parties, um, two types of people, those who've come up, so in the Labour Party often it's people who've had trade union experience, yeah. uh, or have been councillors um, and done very practical politics, or you've got people, and some of them are brilliant at the age of the early 20s, and they become special advisors, they're brilliant at political theory um, and then or interestingly when they become MPs they then have to learn the people trade whereas when we become MPs we have to learn the the, the political theory if you like so you you get there in the end but you you go in two different you can come in in a number of different ways uh, so that's super super insightful um, so then when you um kind of you become an MP and, and 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 if I take you on your word here which I will that that wasn't you know uh, a strategic desire at that age of five when you're like I can talk really good I'm gonna do this um you just you took to it you loved it it, it was um 
everything that you you hoped it would be um and i think um you know we could go into detail there but actually what i'd be more interested to do um as the next part of the show would be to talk about this more recent um phase um where because i think it's i think it's more probably interesting to 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 the audience because you're setting up a portfolio of concerns so how have you gone from being a fully occupied mp to now you're in the house of lords which um is is prestigious great fun you still get all the involvement of overall macro um policy um but to the side of that it was a fresh canvas and this is what a lot of people face in their career how did you go in order of thinking what you would do well, uh, I, of course, I made the decision to leave politics in the course of really last, so autumn 2019, and the election was announced at the end of October, and I announced uh, that I was not going to stand. So I thought I was going to escape politics then, and then the Prime Minister had other ideas and hoiked me back in December, and I said, yep, I'll do another six weeks in Department of Culture, Digital Culture, Media and Sport, um, and from the House of Lords. So I suppose I had a sort of attempt then. I mean, I, I had sort of expected... Um, that I would uh, go back to doing something, yes, in the House of Lords, but also something sort of more full-time executive in the city, financial services and everything else. And that was kind of on the basis I was having discussions in November, but also in February, March of this year. But then, of course, the, the, the virus came along. And, you know, as you will know, people's hiring decisions have changed. Uh, they, obviously, business models have, have changed everything else. Um, and so uh, I had always at the back of my mind had, well, there's always a potential for a sort of portfolio type career, um, which is what I'm putting together. And, and actually, somebody said to me, you're going to have to kiss a lot of frogs before you end up with some opportunities that, that are interesting. And some things came along very quickly. Um, as I say, the careers and enterprise company, you know, Christine Hodgson called me up and said, uh, you know, I think uh, would you like to get involved again? Um, but other things like the financial services compensation scheme came about because actually a recruitment person said they're looking for a new board members um, and, uh, you know, would you be interested in, in, in applying? Um, and from that, real, you know, once you start taking on certain positions, then, you, you know, you work out how many days a month you've got and what flexibilities you, you need. And actually, ultimately, I think the flexibility for me is going to be good. Um, and of course, you can do an awful lot of this now virtually working from home because I don't want to spend all my time in London. Because one of the things about politics, one of the reasons I left is that being an MP, you spend um, three nights a week minimum in London away from my, my family, which is what I didn't want to keep, keep doing. Uh, so, you know, it's exciting, but it's also new for me. And as I said, I haven't done a CV for 17 years. I haven't done a job interview. And I did my first, you know, uh, interview for the financial service conversation scheme on, on teams. And that was quite nerve wracking because I haven't done a job interview, as I say, for no, you don't do job interviews in politics. The prime <laughs> minister calls you up or the chief whip and says, we'd like you to do this. Um, and usually you say yes. And it's good in a way because you don't think about it for too long. You, you take the opportunity um and you don't agonize about it which sometimes i think in the world of work you spend too long overthinking shall i apply and you can miss the opportunity the um the recruiter or headhunter who's reached out to you or, or now the number who have um if i'm doing that then um you know you don't need a cv it's okay i'll sell that to my client but what we would definitely go into um would be trying to work out your drivers and so we've covered actually what your superpower is, <laughs> but um, what would be interesting would be to go through these because because I'm thinking it didn't sound like as soon as you were um, in that inflection point from being an MP to becoming a, a, a portfolio um, politician that there was a, a perfect solution for you. So maybe this is something Marna Search can offer to the market. Um, <laughs> so it would be, uh, be great, right? So drivers typically, as you'll know, are going to be um, ranging from financial, that it could be to do with prestige, it could be to do with legacy, it could be to do with uh, work-life balance, uh, it can be to do with the stimulation from the actual task, etc. What would you say the the, the three um, main drivers for you are at the moment? 
I suppose the first is probably because I still have a role in public life in the House of Lords, it's got to be something that is compatible with that. So there are certain sectors that are newsworthy for the wrong reasons um, and that, you know, may well be on a mission to change their reputations or, uh, you know, do things differently. Um, but it's something I'm not going to get involved in because it, you know, it will be difficult uh, with having a role, as I say, because everything has to be declared. For you know, instance, tobacco or something like that. Tobacco would be would be one of them. Um, so so that sort of that sort of thing, um, you know, uh, um, you know, potentially uh, lending, uh, lending credit to vulnerable people, for example, would be yes. something obviously I, I did an inquiry about when I was on the chair of the Treasury Set Committee. Now, on the one hand, that's a very necessary part of the financial lending market. On the other, you know, it wouldn't be right. I don't think I didn't think it would be right for, for, for me, for example. So that sort of that sort of thing. Um, I suppose the next is in terms of it is about intellectually interesting. And then the one thing about being an MP and a minister, I mean, actually, law was the same. But, you know, an MP and a minister, I never had two days that were the same. And I always had emails or, or submissions every day when I thought, I don't know the answer to this. I need to think about it. I need to go and find something out and everything else. And I wanted that level of intellectual stimulation still. Um, and, you know, you think about the drivers, you know, people saying, to me, what's your ideal job? My ideal job has been given a sort of a, a problem to be able to work out uh, how to solve, but also how to sell. You know, as, an, as a politician, certainly as a minister, you are given a difficult issue and you are asked to go and explain it to the public, you know, solve it by getting people around a table or, or whatever it might be. And that's the sort of thing that I still really enjoy doing. And then I th think my third driver actually turned out to be um, flexibility. Um, helped by in a way lockdown being at home more thinking actually I don't want to go back to and I suspect a lot of people are doing this at the moment we all want to go back to work but we don't necessarily want to go back to you know, nine to five commuting being away from home whatever it might be super useful um, I would also then next ask you <laughs> <laughs> like a, an interview with a yeah well it is an interview with a search consultant <laughs> we're going to store this on our database and we'll um we'll we'll share with you great opportunities as they come up nikki um what do you think would be the the worst trait that you have when you bring it to a a, a future employer um well, I think um, the the worst trait would be um, thinking I know the answer, I suppose. Um, and, and you know, the, the fact is, as a, as a politician, I mean, so as a politician, I was talking about this the other day, as a politician, when you're interviewed, uh, what you don't usually say or can't usually say is, um, I, I don't know the answer to that. So what you do is you have about 15 seconds while the interviewer is asking you, um, and that's <laughs> this podcast too, uh, you know, about what am I going to say? I don't, and there are times when I've been on the Today programme and I've thought literally as the question's ending, uh, and my mouth is going to have to move in about two seconds and I do not know what's going to come out of it because I do not know uh, actually what is best for me to say, but you have to say something. And so I think that ability uh, not always to be in the driving seat with an answer and um, particularly for me, the challenge as a new board member is going to be just listening to the expertise of others and their experience of running the company or whatever it might be before leaping in. Fantastic. You, you answered that where you spun it into um, empathy and positive attributes. It's a great answer. No coaching required, Nikki. Um, <laughs> um, do, you, do you know what's really interesting? Of now, say, the 30 shows that, that we've had, um, we, we, I mean, we, we re-listen to them and try and make sure that we understand that we've got all the value out of them. And we're also using algorithms to dissect everything that anybody's ever said. Um, I'm, jo I'm, I'm joking. But, um, but, but, but do, you, do you know what recurs in most shows? You haven't done it. Um, is people say, oh, that's a great question, Lloyd. And, and early on, this flattered me. I was like, these people think I'm a brilliant interviewer. And, and now what I've realised is that they're saying that when they're playing for time to work out what to say to my question. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And I think, yeah, we're all, we're all used as politicians to be asked questions to which we don't have the answer. So you just think, I've got to start. And I mean, I did, I think sometimes you say, 
well or look um and yeah. that does drive the listeners <laughs> mad and i've had a few people contact me and say i can't believe you said that thing in every sentence you think well it's because it was a tough interview and i was trying very hard to pick my words carefully um yeah no it's it's absolutely hilarious but it's a skill that's definitely a skill you you, you that'll be very useful in your um portfolio career so i think that cover, covers most things i wanted to to answer nikki and thank you so much for your time um, I know how precious it is. Um, is there anything that you wanted to just to finish, get across um, to the audience at this point? No, I think the only thing, I mean, I think, um, you know, we're talking about fintech and about digital and data. I think these are just great opportunities for the UK. Um, and um, uh, a book I'd recommend anyone reading, it is a thick book. It was a lockdown book for me, was The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zubov. Uh, which makes you think about um, data, which has great opportunities, but also great challenges in terms of, of, of management. So, um, you know, and it's going to be a tough, tough time ahead for all of us, but also I think there will be opportunities out there. We'll, um, we'll put that book in the show notes and um, we'll also put, put um, a book that you wrote. Um, oh, yes. sorry, I, I don't know what the title is off the, the top of my head. It is, it? I can read it on my side. It's uh, Taught Not Caught, Educating for 21st Century Character. And uh, if you were to give um, a brief on, on what it covers? Well, it was basically about, um, we talked about it a little bit earlier on, it's about building character and the importance of educators, but also the things that happen in schools and not in schools. But the fact that actually you can build character in young people deliberately, it shouldn't be left to chance. Because again, I think actually it's a very important part of the whole levelling up agenda. It goes back to my thing about how you walk into a room, uh, your first impressions actually having the self-belief and confidence to be able to make a good first impression, um, uh, but also to be able to bounce back from life's challenges is really important. That sounds amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to definitely. And it's a short book. I did it so that you could, I mean, particularly for busy teachers, but I did it so that people didn't have to spend hours reading it. So you'll go from what's a pretty short book to the Zubov book, I have to say, is one of those ones you take a deep breath, but it is genuinely worth it reading it. Two fantastic recommendations. We'll um, put those in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the great questions.